Well, we've called this sermon series The Gospel in Graffiti because graffiti is an artistic expression um, which is for communities that are on the margins, communities and people who feel oppressed, pushed down, excluded. And so the art communicates in a kind of explosion of vivid images and color as a way of expressing their feelings, as a way of subverting the narratives of the dominant culture and instead communicating something of what the community itself feels. And look, in the same way, the people in Zechariah's time were feeling very much on the margins. They were the, under the control of the superpower at the time, Persia. They were a vassal state. That means that Persia had conquered them and held them to account, and they had very limited powers. They felt small. We, we see that in Zechariah 4 verse 10, where they describe it as being a day of small things. Their city lay in tatters. Their temple was not yet rebuilt. They felt pushed down, pressed in, excluded, like people didn't understand them. And look, in the same way today, we are feeling a sense of great forces in the world pushing down on us. We feel under pressure. We feel on the margins, largely because of the COVID virus and the way that it has thrown our lives completely upside down great forces in the world of the virus. And even, you know, whilst the governments of the world try to do their very best, of course, they have to impose on our freedoms with things like lockdowns. And so we feel squeezed, and we can identify, therefore, very much with the people in Zechariah's day. More specifically, though, more generally, even once, you know, God willing, we emerge out of lockdown and the vaccine starts to take effect, the position of the church, more generally in the West, feels very much like in Zechariah's day we look back like they did to past years of glory. You know, for them, when David and Solomon and the temple and, you know, Jerusalem and Israel were the praise of the nations, we similarly can look back 100 years or so ago to past glory days of the church in the West. But now we're in the age of small things. We feel like the giant forces of secularization push us to the margins. We feel small. Even in London, where on any given Sunday, other things being equal, if people can attend, 9% of the population are in church. It's the only city in the UK where the church has been growing in real terms over the last 30 years or so. So we feel small, and we feel excluded and pushed to the peripheries. And Zechariah speaks into that situation with these powerful images. We get eight images in the first half of the book, and we're going to look at the first two of them today. And this explosion of vivid color speaks to God's people then and speaks to us today and gives us words of hope, but also great words of challenge about how we're going to respond as well. So let's look at that this morning. We're going to see three things from our passage, a reversal of fortunes, a reframing of power, and a call to repentance. Let's look first of all at the image in verses 7 to 17 and reversal of fortunes. But before we get that, let's, um, let's just get our historical bearings. Verse 1 tells us that this is set in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. Now, this is written in about 520 BC, and Darius is the Persian ruler who commands much of the ancient Near East. He's the leader of the superpower at the time. God's people had been conquered nearly 70 years previously by another superpower, Babylon at the time, in 587 to 586 BC. And as much as that was a political and military move, ultimately, them being conquered was a spiritual reality that God's people had to face. 
Because behind it all was the sovereign Lord who sent them into exile because of years of rebellion against him. The prophets had warned for generations that if they continued to rebel, God would put them into exile. They did not heed the warnings of the prophets, and the exile came. Jerusalem was destroyed, Israel was conquered, the temple was razed nearly to the ground, only a pile of rubble left remaining, and a large number of God's people were carted off into Babylon. Then about 50 years or so after that, Babylon itself was conquered by Cyrus the Great of Persia. One superpower exchanged for another, and Cyrus the Great had a more moderate foreign policy, and so he allowed some of the exiles to return to Jerusalem. And for 20 years previous to Zechariah, they were trying to rebuild the city and the temple, but the work hadn't gone well. It had stalled, and they felt disillusioned, looking back at past glory years, longing for something to change. And into that situation, on one night, we get these eight visions sent to Zechariah. Look at the first vision with me in verse 8. During the night, I, that is Zechariah, had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. Now, there's important symbolism here that we could easily miss because, of course, we're dealing with this two and a half thousand years later, and so symbols at the time would be picked up in different ways. But let's deal, first of all, with the horses. It was common at that time for Persia to um, police, if you like, its vassal states by sending out riders on horses that would appear on the horizon, and they would evaluate what was going on. And if they didn't like what they saw, then they could report back to central Persia, and the next thing that that vassal state like Israel would know is that the whole Persian army could be marching on its doorstep. This is actually where um, Tolkien gets the idea of the ringwraiths and the Nazgul, these dark riders appearing on the horizon, searching and evaluating and seeing what's going on. And imagine if you were an Israelite, the fear you would feel when you saw on the horizon a Persian horse rider. Do they like what they see? What if they don't like what if they see? What if they send back a bad report? The next thing you know, you could be sent into another exile. It was a constant reminder that you weren't free, that you weren't sovereign, that you were oppressed and under a foreign power. But notice here, the riders aren't coming from Persia to Israel. No, no, these are riders from Israel sent out by God to the nations. Whether or not there were four horses and four horse riders, which gets picked up in Revelation as the four horse riders of the apocalypse, or whether it's just the four colors of various horses and horse riders, the point of the four is that it matches the four parts of the compass, north, south, east, west, the four corners of the earth. In other words, God is sending out riders to assess the earth, to see what he sees, because he is the real sovereign. He is the one really in power. And what does he see, verse 11? A strange diagnosis. They reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Well, that may sound good, right? They're at rest and they're in peace. You'll think, well, that's a good thing. No, it's not a good thing. Why? Because verse 14... God's people are not at rest and at peace. 
I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. In other words, they feel secure, but God's people are downtrodden. They have oppressed God's people. He says they've gone too far. The exile might have been initiated by God, but the glee with which the nations stamped down on Israel, they went too far. And so into that situation, God says there's going to be a reversal of fortunes. Look at verse 17. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. This is the picture of the myrtle tree in there. Again, people in the ancient Near East would have known that myrtle trees don't grow in deserts. They need to be able to draw on fertile soil. And so the myrtle tree is a picture of fertility. And in an agrarian culture, so often the prophets would pick up on fertile soil and things like that and fruitfulness as a picture of spiritual blessings. So God is saying that just as he sends out the riders, not the nation sending the riders, to Jerusalem, a reversal that way. So there will be a reversal. The desert will become a place of blessing. In other words, the exile will one day end. God's people will return. He will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. In the classic story of Dick Whittington, uh, Dick is a, a poor child. He lives on the streets of London in abject poverty. And even when he seems to get a break, he ends up at a house, and he works in that house for, you know, kind of slave labor, as it were. The cook is cruel to him, and he's made to sleep in a freezing cold room at night where the rats and the mice nibble at his feet and injure him. And he gets to the point of utter despair that he leaves London. And as he's leaving London, he hears the bells of the church famously. And as he hears the bells, he hears behind them the phrase, turn again, Dick Whittington, thrice, three times, Lord Mayor of London. And he he hears in this prophecy that he's going to become the Lord Mayor of London. And at that moment, everything changes. Why? Because he's got hope. And this is what he says. Why, to be sure, I would put up with almost anything now to be Lord Mayor of London, to ride in a coach when I grow to be a man. Well, I will go back and I will think nothing of the difficulties I now face. Do you see? That's how hope works. One word of hope can suddenly change everything. And so God speaks to his people feeling downtrodden, oppressed, just as I'm sure you feel that right now. And he speaks a word of hope, a reversal of fortunes. He is saying a better day is coming. And on one level, that happened when the exiles did return, and they did rebuild much of Jerusalem, and they did rebuild the temple. But then, of course, that wasn't the ultimate problems they were dealing with. They still faced the problems of a fallen world. They still faced the problems of their own sinful and fallen hearts. And so this points to a second horizon of fulfillment, the time when the Lord Jesus Christ came to his people and visited Jerusalem, when he came and restored the fortunes. And just as he came the first time, so Scripture tells us he will come a second time now, guaranteed by his death and resurrection. And when he returns that time, this world will be made new. No more disease, no more death, for the old order of things will have passed away. Death will be turned to life. Despair will be turned to joy. Hardship will be placed by comfort. And that is hope to us in our current COVID situation. Ultimately, our hope cannot be in the vaccine, because you and I both know the tragic reality is that people still die. If not by COVID, we all will die. 
And this world is a world of disease, and there will be other future diseases, won't there? But the hope, the Christian hope, is this world made new. No more death, no more disease, no more despair when this world is made new. And in the same way that I said this was also a word to God's people who felt small and depressed, this is a word of hope to the church. Yes, we may feel like in the West at the moment we're in the age of small things, but imagine what would have happened if you had turned to God's people then, in 520 BC, and you said to them, one day will come, a couple of millennia from now, where the church will be across the globe the largest, most united, most diverse, most geographically dispersed movement the world has ever seen. You, oh small people who feel drown-trodden, you will be the greatest people group the world has ever known. That is the future of the church. They would have said, no way. But we live now to know that to be true. And don't you think that the Lord who did that can overcome the forces of secularism, the sneering of a culture that pays no respect to the Lord Jesus Christ, can breathe hope to us today as a church? That's the first point in the first vision. Let's look now at the second point as we see how God is going to do this as we look at a reframing of power in verses 18 to 21. Then I looked, verse 18, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered, these are the horns that scatter Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I said, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scatter Judah so that no one could raise their head, but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations. Again, imagery we might not get, but... I grew up in an agricultural part of um, the UK in the Midlands, and my, families were, my family was uh, mostly farmers up until the previous generation before me. But you don't have to have grown up in the rural regions to know that horns symbolize power. And what's the difference between a cow and a bull? And why are we afraid of a bull and not a cow? Because a bull has horns. And so similarly, these horns are symbols of power. They're symbolic of the power of the nations that has overwhelmed Israel and overwhelmed God's people. But in contrast, these symbols of power are themselves going to be undercut. By whom? By craftsmen. Now, that word for craftsmen is the same word that's used of the craftsmen in the tabernacle and the craftsmen in the temple. In other words, the very people who are going to rebuild the temple are the very people who are undercutting the power or the superpowers of the nations. What is God saying? He's saying that people look for power in places like military might, um, kind of numerical superiority, political power, but real power exists in the work of rebuilding the temple. And he's not primarily talking about the rebuilding of the physical temple. Let me read Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 from you. They were tells us about the real temple. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building, this whole temple, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. In other words, how will God turn things around? How will God overthrow the nations who are in power, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, 
says the Lord, Zechariah 4, verse 6. One of the great themes of Zechariah is a subversion of the narratives of power. Real power is in the power of the Spirit, not by military might, not by political power, but the work of the Spirit. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this vision in Zechariah. Because the night when he was betrayed, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they came out to arrest him with a militia, a small army, with swords, symbols of military might. And you remember the story maybe well. Even one of his own, Peter, often prone to be first to act and to think last, drew a sword and jumped into the fray. And Jesus said to him, put away that sword. Don't you think I've got the power to call a legion of angels just like that and to overthrow this militia straight away? But that's not my way. What would that change? Another ruler ruling by worldly power. Another rhetoric of power. That doesn't change the world. Jesus knew what it would take to change the world. He went to the cross because at the cross he gave up his power. He showed that real spiritual strength is the strength to be weak, that glory is shown in humility, that the crown that sits on his head is the crown of a servant who is humble enough to be weak and to give up his life even to death on a cross. For all of the ways that we constantly think to ourselves, how can I get power? How can I get ahead of her, ahead of him? How can I be number one? How can it be all about me? No, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The world needs to see what true power is, says the Lord Jesus, the power that is strong enough to be weak, the glory that is majestic enough to be humble, the leader who is secure enough to serve. In this past week, haven't we seen the need for that? And so Jesus gave it all up for us. He conquered, but he did it by love. He overcame, but he did it by service. He was glorified, but he did it through weakness. And that's how true power is still shown today. And so therefore, what is our response? Well, I come back now to the verses that I've deliberately omitted because this is really the application, verses 1 to 6. A call to repentance. Do you notice what triggers all of this? The two visions come on the back of repentance. And these famous words, verse 3, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. And it's because they return, verse 6, in repentance, that God then acts with these visions. He responds to their repentance in grace. He's been waiting for over a generation that has died in exile, for them to finally realize and repent. Let's try to be really concrete here about what repentance is, because I think it is greatly misunderstood in the church and outside the church today, repentance. First of all, repentance is not the same as regret. Can I be clear about this? Repentance is not the same as regret. Don't you think the exiles, as they wept, as it says in Psalm 139, by the rivers of Babylon, were regretful of their situation? They regretted their situation. They were broken people. They were not repentant people. David, 
is a repentant man. Saul is a broken man. He wasn't a repentant man. It is possible for you to be deeply upset about a situation you find yourself in and regret it deeply, but not repent. Let us not fool our own hearts and let us not be fooled by other people's hearts. Repentance is turning back to the Lord. And so this asks the question, and I say this now sensitively, a world that is under God's judgment is a world of disease and death. Of course it is not true. The Lord Jesus Christ himself makes this explicit in John chapter 9 that people who die of COVID are any more sinful than anybody else. But why is we, are we in a world of COVID? Why are we in a world where there's death? Because we've turned away from God. In general terms, that's true. The wages of sin is death, and we fear the disease because it can kill us. And that is the judgment of God on all of us. And therefore, the only way to avoid death, which we're all heading for, whether by COVID or another means, is to repent, to turn back to God, to say, God, against you, you only have I sinned. I recognize it. I've lived my whole life in rebellion against you. You're the source of life and goodness. I've lived for myself and my own power. And therefore, by turning away from you, the source of life, I've turned to death. I deserve that. That is repentance. And even if we get the vaccine and avoid death by COVID, death still will come for all of us unless we repent. I say that with a heavy heart, but you must hear that this morning. We need to repent and turn back to God. Notice, repentance, secondly, is God-centered. Return to me, declares the Lord. Not return to a doctrine, not return to a pattern of behavior, but return to me. Because you recognize that against God, primarily, have we sinned. That our every offense behind every moral failure that may have hurt other people in very significant ways, we have wronged God supremely as the moral source of the universe. When we repent, we turn away from our sin and we turn back to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ, seeing Jesus on the cross saying, you died for me and that's what I deserve, to be in your place, but you put yourself in my place. And so you turn to Him. Repentance is not the same as regret. Repentance is God-centered, and lastly, repentance is concrete. Verse 4, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. Ultimately, repentance is not judged by the professions of someone's lips, by the sincerity or lack of it that we seem to think of in their heart, but by concrete actions in space, time, and history. Will we return to the Lord? And if, in returning to the Lord, we become aware of ways that we have wronged other people, will we say sorry to them? If reparations need to be made for past sins, will we do that? Here as a church family, we need to be clear on this. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church. The first one was this, all of life is repentance. In other words, to be a Christian is to live daily repentance. To be good at saying sorry to God, because we do it every time we meet as a service. We should do it every day in a Christian walk. And so it shouldn't be difficult for us to say sorry to one another. I'm sorry I did that. I spoke too quickly. Please forgive me. I'm going to try not to do it again. Would you pray for me as I pray for myself? That's repentance. Repentance to God that leads to repentance with other people. We need to be a community of repentance. And the wonderful thing about repentance is that as you do that, it doesn't earn God's favor. God's favor has already been achieved by Jesus on the cross. 
but it receives God's favor. It's the empty hand that says, I need you. I need you to forgive me. I'm sorry, Lord. Forgive me. As I closed, I started at the beginning talking of two ways we feel under pressure, the virus and also as a church that's battered and bruised and small in the West in general. Well, how do we avoid the curses of a fallen world, repent, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? But how is the church going to be restored in the West? We've got some hard truths to grapple with here. In the last three or four years in the UK and in the US, there has been a brutal expose of the failings of the evangelical church particularly and the way that we have courted worldly power. We have thought if we can get political power or a good name for ourselves, if we can just do things like the world, then suddenly things will be restored. No, says the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, repent. Stop trusting in yourselves, O church. Start trusting in me. Do the hard work of repentance. Rebuild the spiritual temple by God's word and by prayer and see what I will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we need to hear these words today, words of comfort and hope, spoken to your people then, but spoken to us today, but also words of challenge that this comfort, this hope of fortunes restored, of power reframed, do not come automatically. They come to a people who repents. Therefore, give us, by your Spirit, a spirit of repentance, we pray, to turn back to you. And as we do that, may Jesus Christ be glorified. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.